3 a.m. Tales of Terror contains explicit content. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, and welcome to another episode of 3AM Tales of Terror, where we tell you stories of the paranormal. I'm your host, Jamie. And I'm Kenny. And this is part three of Amityville, and we're really going to try and knock this out into four parts for you all. So... The last part, the big finale, will probably be longer. Yeah, we're going to probably make that about two hours, if you guys are okay with that, because... I mean, they don't have a choice in the matter. I mean, yeah, but... We're going to see where we can get to today. I'm hoping we'll get to... Right now, we're on December 29th to the 30th. We're going to try and get to January 6th. If we have time, we can read January 6th. But the next chapter after January 6th is January 6th to the 7th. And that's kind of a longer chapter. So if we can make it to January 8th, cool. If not, it'll just be a little bit longer on the last one. Because I really am just trying... I I don't want to bore you guys with this, so... Spoiler alert. (laughs) You're so mean. Okay, so I am going to start so that we can just go ahead and hop into it. So December 29th to the 30th. The next morning, Monday, George's ankle was stiff. He had taken a nasty tumble over the porcelain lion and fallen heavily against some of the logs by the fireplace. He also had a cut over his right eye, but it hadn't bled much after Kathy put a Band-Aid on it. What disturbed Kathy was the clear imprint of teeth marks on his ankle. George limped out to his 1974 van and had trouble turning over the cold motor. With temperatures in the low 20s, George knew he could anticipate ignition problems. But finally, he got the van going and headed across the island towards Syosset. His first order of business was to cover the check he had written to the Astoria Manor. That meant drawing funds from the account of William H. Perry Incorporated, his land surveying business. Halfway to Syoset, on the Sunrise Highway, George felt a bump in the back of the van. He pulled over and inspected the rear end. One of the shock absorbers had come loose and fallen off. George was puzzled. This was a mishap That might occur after the shocks were old and worn, if then, but the Ford had only gone 26,000 miles. He drove on again, intending to replace the part once he returned to Amityville. After George drove off that morning, Kathy's mother called to tell her that she had received a card from Jimmy and Carrie in Bermuda. Why don't you bring the children over to my house for a while? Jimmy's car was still in the driveway, but Kathy didn't feel like leaving home. She said she'd still had a load of laundry to do, but but that she and George might come over on New Year's Eve. They had made no plans as yet, and she would ask George when he came back. Kathy hung up and looked around, feeling at a loss as to what she should do next. The depressed feeling from the day before was still with her, and she was afraid to remain alone in the kitchen or go down to the washing machine in the basement. After the ceramic lion incident, Kathy also hesitated about going into the living room. She finally wound up going upstairs to be near the children. With them, she thought she wouldn't feel so alone and frightened. Kathy looked on, looked in on Missy in her bedroom and Danny and Chris in theirs before going into her own room and lying down. She had been on the bed dozing for about 15 minutes 
when she began to hear noises coming from the sewing room across the hall. It sounded as if someone was opening and closing a window. Kathy got off the bed and went to the sewing room door. It was still shut. She could see that Missy was in her own bedroom, and she could hear the boys running around on the floor above. She listened. Behind the closed door, the sounds continued. Kathy stared at the door, but did not dare open it. She turned around and went back to her bedroom and got back on the bed, pulling the cover up over her head. In Syaset, George found a caller waiting for him. The man introduced himself as inspector, as an inspector from the Internal Revenue Service and explained that he was there to examine the company's books and past tax returns. George called his accountant. The IRS agent spoke with him and made an appointment to return on January 7th. After the agent left, George got on with his priorities, withdrawing $500 from the William H. Perry Incorporation, Incorporated account and depositing it into his personal checking account. Going over the plans that had been completed for several land surveys, deciding how to handle the few assignments that had come into the office since he had been away, and then doing some research into the DeFeo family and the background of 112 Ocean Avenue. When the men on his staff asked him why he'd been out for so long, George told them only that he had been sick. He knew that was untrue, but what other explanation would make any sense? By one o'clock, George had completed his duties in Syaset. He planned to make one more stop before heading back to Amityville. Long Island's largest daily newspaper in pages of advertising and circulation is Newsday. George reasoned that if there was any place where he could learn some facts about the DeFeos, Newsday's Garden City office would be the most logical starting point. He was referred to the microfilm department where a clerk checked the cross-index files for the dates of the DeFeo murders and Ronnie's trial. George only vaguely recalled the details of the way the son had slaughtered the whole family, but he did remember that the trial had been held in Riverhead, Long Island sometime in the fall of 1975. George put the microfilm of the newspaper into the reader and ran it down until he came to November 14, 1974. One of the first items he noticed was a photograph taken of Ronnie DeFeo at the time of his arrest, the morning after the discovery of his family's bodies at 112 Ocean Avenue. The bearded 23-year-old face staring back at him from the picture could have been his own. He was about to read on when it hit George that this was the face that he had seen fleeting on the closet in the on the closet wall in his basement. The first articles told how Ronnie had run into a bar near his home calling for help, saying that someone had killed his parents, brothers and sisters. With two friends, Ronald DeFeo returned to his house where they found Ronald Sr., 43, Luis, 42, Allison, 13, Dawn, 18, Mark, 11, and John, 9, all were in their beds, all shot in the back. The story continued that at the time of DeFeo's arrest the following morning, Amityville police said that the the motives for the murders were a $200,000 life insurance policy and a strong box filled with cash hidden in his parents' bedroom closet. The last item explained that when the prosecution was ready, the trial would be held in the state Supreme Court at Riverhead. George inserted another microfilm reel, reel, and this one containing the day-by-day record of the seven-week trial held from September through November. The record included charges of 
police brutality in forcing a confession from Ronnie DeFeo and went on to attorney William Weber's parroting psychiatrist to the stand to substantiate his plea of Ronnie's insanity. However, the jury found the youth sane and guilty of murder, imposing a sentence of six consecutive life terms. State Supreme Court Justice State Supreme Court Justice Thomas Salk called the killings the, quote, most heinous and abhorrent crimes. George left the Newsday office thinking that the coroner's report that pinpointed the time of the DeFeo's death at about 3.15 in the morning. That was the exact moment George had been waking since they'd been in the house. He would have to tell Kathy. George also wondered if the DeFeos had used the red room in the basement as a secret hideaway for their money. As he drove back to Amityville, George was so absorbed in the thought that he never noticed or heard his left tire wobbling. As he stopped for a red light on Route 110, another car pulled alongside. The driver leaned over and opened his window down the right, on the right side. He tooted his horn to catch George's attention, then yelled that George's wheel was coming off. George got out and examined the wheel. All the bolts were loose. George could feel them turn easily in his fingers. With his windows closed, he had dimly heard the racket, but being wrapped up in his thoughts, he just never considered it was coming from his car. What the devil was going on? First, the shock absorber had fallen off. Now this? Was someone fooling around with the van? He or Kathy could have been killed if the wheel came off while driving at any speed. George became even angrier and more frustrated when he looked for the jack handle in the rear of the van. It was gone. He'd have to tighten the bolts by hand until he could get to a service station. By then, it would be too late to do any further checking on the background of 112 Ocean Avenue. On Tuesday, Father Mancuso could no longer ignore the redness in the palms of his hands, nor the excruciating pain he felt when he touched the sore spots. Even though the doctor had given him antibiotic injections, he had been unable to shake off this second flu attack. His temperature remained high. Every ache and pain in his body seemed intensified and magnified a hundredfold. The day before Monday, Father Mancuso had accepted the redness that developed in his palms as just another manifestation of his illness. When the peculiar coloring and extreme sensitivity remained in it became painful to pick anything up with his hands, Father Mancuso started to become a great deal more concerned. That's a weird sentence. The next day, the Amityville Historical Society had some interesting information for George, particularly about the very location of his house. It seems the Shinnecock Indians used land on the Amityville River as an enclosure for the sick, mad, and dying. These unfortunates were penned up until they died of exposure. However, the record noted that the Shinnecocks did not use this tract as a consecrated burial mound because they believed it to be infested with demons. For how many uncounted centuries the Shinnecocks carried on in this manner, no one really knows. But in the late 1600s, white settlers eased the first Americans out of the area, sending them further out to Long Island. To this day, Shinnecocks still own the land, property, and businesses on the eastern tip of the island. One of the more notorious settlers who came to the newly named Amityville in those days was a John Ketchum, or Ketchum, it's just spelled different, 
who had been forced out of Salem, Massachusetts for practicing witchcraft. John set up a residence within 500 feet of where George now lived. Continuing his alleged devil worship, the account also claimed that he was buried somewhere on the northeast corner of the property. From the real estate tax assessment office in town, George learned that the house at 112 Ocean Avenue had been built in 1928 by a Mr. Monaghan. It passed through several families until 1965 when the DeFeos purchased it from the Rileys. But in spite of all that he had read in the past two days, George was no closer to the solution of what the mystery of what the mysterious red room was used for or who built it. There was no record of any improvements being made to the house that resembled the addition of a basement room. It was the night before New Year's Eve. The Lutzes went to bed early. George had checked the sewing room for Kathy as he had done the night before after returning from Newsday. Both evenings, the windows had been shut and locked. Earlier, they had discussed what George had discovered about the history of their property and house. George, Kathy asked nervously, Do you think it's haunted? No way, he replied. I don't believe in ghosts. Besides, everything that's happened around here must have a logical and scientific explanation to it. White people. (laughs) I'm not so sure. What about the lion? What about it, he asked. Kathy looked around the kitchen where they were sitting. Well, what what about what I felt those two times? I told you, I know somebody touched me, George. George stood up stretching. Oh, come on, honey. I think it's just your imagination. Bitch. He reached for her hand. I've had that happen to me, too, when I was sure my father had put his hand on my shoulder in the office. He pulled Kathy out of her chair. I was positive he was standing right beside me. It happens to a lot of people, but it's, it's, I I think they call it clairvoyance or something like that. Definitely not. (laughs) Oh my God. The couple had their arms around each other's waist as George turned out the light in the kitchen. They passed the living room on the way to the stairs. Kathy stopped. She could see the crouching lion in the darkness of the room. George, I think we should continue with our meditation. Let's do it tomorrow, okay? You think that way we can find a logical explanation for all that's happened? He asked, drawing her upstairs. There was no logical or scientific explanation for Father Frank Mancuso as he prepared to go to bed. He had just prayed in his own rooms, searching and hoping for an answer to the question of why his palms were itching so terribly. So what? I can't remember. What oh, ha- you're sweaty. There's mom's spaghetti on his uh, What happened there. to him? Oh, he's just sick. He's got the flu, right? Well, <clears throat> they say it's the flu, but he had the flu first. Then when he was like, you know, I'm going to go back and check on him again. Then he got attacked again by the, the thickness. And now his palms are red and he has sore spots. Yeah, and they're like sore to the touch, too. Yeah, and he's been getting injections. That's not, not helping. Oh, me. Well, now we're finally on New Year's Eve. December 31st. Yep. All right, December 31st. The year, 1976, was just around the corner. The last day of the old year dawned on a heavy snowfall, and to many people, that was a signal that a fresh, clean start would usher in the new. In the Lutz household, there was a completely different mood. George hadn't slept well, even though he had been active enough for the past two days, inside and outside the house. He awoke during the night, looked at his watch, and was surprised to find that it was 2.30 a.m., not 3.15, as he anticipated. 
George awoke again at 4.30 a.m., saw it was the beginning of snow, and tried to fall back asleep under the warm covers. But tossing and turning, he couldn't find a comfortable position. In her sleep, Kathy was bothered by his restlessness and rolled over against George so that he would be pushed to the edge of the bed. Story of my life. Wide awake, he kept having visions of discovering secret caches of money around the house and using them to solve his financial problems. George was beginning to choke with the pressures of the mounting bills for the house he had just taken on and for the office, where he would shortly have a very serious payroll deficit. All the cash that he and Kathy had saved had gone toward the expenses of the closing, an old fuel bill, and paying off the boats and motorcycles. And now the latest blow, the investigation of his books and tax returns by the IRS. Small wonder that George dreamed of a simple magical solution to the bind he was in. He wished he could find Jimmy's money. The 1500 would be a lifesaver. George stared at the falling snow. He had read the newspaper account that Mr. DeFeo had been extremely well off with a big bank account and with a very good position working for his wife's father's in a big car dealership. George had examined his bedroom closet and discovered Mr. DeFeo's secret hiding place under the door jam. The police had found it first at the time of Ronnie's arrest and now it was empty, just a hole in the floor. He kept wondering where else the DeFeos would have stashed some cash away. The boathouse. George sat up in bed. Maybe there was a meaning behind him being drawn there every night. Was some something dragging him there? Was the dead man somehow urging him to take a look for his fortune? George was desperate. He knew even to contemplate such a screwy idea. But why else would he be driven to the boathouse night after night? At 6.30, George finally gave up and got out of bed. He knew he would never fall asleep again that morning, so he quietly slipped from the room, went down to the kitchen, and made some coffee. It was still dark outside at that hour, but he could see the snow was beginning to pile up near the kitchen door. He saw a light on the ground floor of his neighbor. Maybe the owner also had money problems and couldn't sleep, he thought. George knew he wouldn't go to the office that day. It was New Year's Eve and everybody would be leaving early anyway. He drank his coffee and planned to search the boathouse and basement for some clues. Then George began to feel a chill in the house. The stern, the, the, the thermostat. The thermostat automatically dropped the temperature between midnight and 6 in the morning. But now it was almost 7 and the heat didn't seem to be on. George went into the dining room and put some kindling and paper into the fireplace. Before the wood blazed up, George noticed that the brick wall was black from all the soot accumulated from his almost constant fires. A little after eight, Kathy came down with Missy. The little girl had awakened her mother with delighted squeals. Oh, Mama, look at the snow. Isn't it beautiful? I want to go outside and play with my sled today. Kathy made her daughter breakfast, but couldn't eat anything herself. She had coffee and a cigarette. George didn't want any food and took only another cup of coffee. He had to get it from the kitchen himself because Kathy didn't want to come into the living room. She told George she had a bad headache. Kathy was frightened of the porcelain line and planned to get rid of it before the day was out, but it was true that she did have a sick headache. By 9 o'clock, George had built the living room fire to a roaring blaze. At 10 o'clock, the snow was still falling. Kathy called out to George from the kitchen that a local radio station had predicted the Amityville River would be completely frozen by nightfall. Reluctantly, George got up from his chair by the fireplace and dressed, put on his boots, and went out to the boathouse. He hadn't had the money to take the cabin cruiser out of the water for the winter. If the river froze, ice would eventually crush the boat, but he had prepared for just this kind of emergency. 
George's mother had given him her paint compressor and had drilled holes in the plastic hose. Now he sank the hose in the water beside the boat and turned on the compressor. It acted as a bubbler system that would keep the water inside the boathouse from freezing. Pretty smart. I'll give him that one. That's pretty smart. (laughs) Yeah, because moving water can't freeze. That makes sense. Oh, it can't? No. Oh, because it's just... Even depending on the temperature? Like, you don't think it could? No, it ha- if it's hitting a certain velocity. Oh, okay. It'll, okay. It, it will, I mean, it's not a lot. Like Right. I didn't know that, though. Like dripping water from a frost, a frost, from a faucet. From a faucet. From a faucet. Will never freeze. So that's pretty smart. I'll give him that one. That's all right. All that morning, Father Mancuso had been looking at his hands, which had begun to fester the night before. They were now dry, but angry red blisters remained. Yeah, that's the flu, all right. Or Satan. I know. (laughs) (laughs) His fever also held at a high 103 degrees Fahrenheit. When the pastor had looked in on him, Father Mancuso had promised to remain in bed for the rest of the day. The priest did not mention what had been happening to his hands. He kept them in his pockets of his bathrobe. When the pastor left his room, Father Mancuso stared at the ugly manifestation on his skin and became angry. All this suffering for just one appearance in an inconsequential house in Amityville? The priest was prepared to give himself in any way that God demanded, but at least he thought, let it be to help humanity. With all his training, devotion, experience, and skills, certainly there had to be some rational explanation he could apply to the enigma. At the moment, he couldn't, and that accounted for his rage. Along with his anger, the pains in his palms increased, and he decided to pray for relief. And as Father Mancuso asked for help, his concentration on his misfortune decreased. The numbness in his tightly gripped hands slowly diminished in its pressure. He spread his fingers and stared at the blisters. The priest sighed and knelt to thank God. Okay, hold on one second. Because, like, obviously this is not the flu. And obviously, I, I, I know why he prays, obviously. I know why he does, because we would do it too. But, like, it's not helping. Fucking drop it. Mind your business. <laughs> it's not helping him. Like, praying is not helping him. Has well, he tried? Did. It did? Mm-hmm. But he still has the blisters and stuff. Well, yeah. I mean, they're not going to go away instantly. That's not really how miracles Has work. he tried going to, like, a doctor? Yeah, they've been giving him injections and shit, but he hasn't told anybody about his hands. I, th- I feel like he should. He's a priest. He should know better. I mean, you know, fairness. Whatever. <laughs> but, yeah, he's got a doctor. He has a doctor that tells him, you know, stay in bed, you know, take this medicine, whatever, and he's And then his, his hands. ass is not staying in bed. No, it's not, and he keeps his hands in his bathrobe. He he's not staying in bed. He's not listening to this doctor. Like I don't, I can't. What do they know anyway? Right? I've never met a doctor that told me what was right and wrong. Oh my god. <laughs> Later in the afternoon was the second time Danny and Chris threatened to run away from home. Well, that took a very strong, strange turn. The first had been when they lived in George's house at Deer Park. He had restricted them to their room for a week because they were lying to him and Kathy about small things. They had revolted against his authority. Both boys refused to obey his orders, threatening to run away if he also forced them to give up television. At this point, George called their bluff, telling Danny and Chris that they could get out if they didn't like the way he ran things at the home. The two youngsters had taken him at his word. They packed all their belongings, toys, clothes, records, and magazines into bedrolls and dragged the big bundles out the front door. When they were about halfway down the street, desperately trying to move the heavy load, a neighbor spotted them and talked them both into going back. For a while, they stopped their childish fibbing, but now there had come a new eruption. 
When she heard them fighting, Kathy had gone up to the room and found the boys on one of the beds. Chris was straddling Danny's chest, ready to clobber his older brother. On the other bed sat Missy, a broad grin on her little face. She was clapping her hands with excitement. Kathy pulled her sons apart. What do you think you're doing? She screamed. What's the matter with you two? Are you going crazy? Missy chimed in. Danny didn't want to clean up the room like you told him to. Kathy looked sternly at the boy. And why not, young man? Do you see what this room looks like? The room was a mess. Toys were scattered all over the floor, intermingled with discarded clothes. The tubes of an old paint set had been left uncapped, the pigments oozing onto the furniture and rug. Some of their new Christmas toys had already been broken and were discarded in corners of the bedroom. Kathy shook her head. I don't know what I'm going to do with you. We bought this beautiful house so you thought so you'd have your own playroom and look what you've done. Danny tore himself loose from his mother's grip. You don't want us to stay in that dumb old playroom. Yeah, Chris chimed in. We don't like it around here. There's nobody to play with. Kathy and the boys bickered back and forth for another five minutes until Danny threw down the gauntlet and challenged his mother with the threat of running away from home. Kathy, in turn, suggested corporal punishment for their behavior. And you know who dishes it out around here. By dinner time, the Lutz family had settled down. The boys had cooled off. Though, Kathy could still feel an undercurrent of tension at the table. George had told Kathy he preferred staying home this New Year's Eve rather than facing drunks on the road from her mother's house. They had made no plans to be with their friends, and it was too cold to go out to a movie. After they had eaten, Kathy convinced George to move the ceramic line back up to the sewing room. Again, there were some flies clinging to the window pane facing the Amityville River. George angrily swatted them to death before slamming the door shut. By 10 o'clock, Missy had fallen asleep on the living room floor. She had exacted a promise from Kathy to awaken her at midnight in time to blow her party horn. Danny and Chris were still up, playing near the Christmas tree and watching TV. George was attending to his fire, like always. Kathy sat across from him trying to lose her depression by looking at an old movie with the boys. As the night wore on, Father Mancuso's hands had been acting up again. Now the blisters were worse, breaking out on the back of his hands. He couldn't put up with the thought of spending an entire night in pain and fright. When his doctor looked at him, he suddenly shoved his palms out and said, Look! Gently the, vis- the, physician. Gently the physician examined the blisters. Frank, I'm not a dermatologist, he said. This could be anything from an allergy to an attack of anxiety. Has something been bothering you that badly? Anxiety? Why? Like Stress pimples? I don't know. I don't know. I've never heard it... On your palms and on the backs of your hands. Oh. Like, your, I've seen them, like, on your face or, like, mm-hmm. your back or whatever, but I've never heard of one on your hands. Um, did you know? Do you know who else is a physician? Hmm. Dr. Pepper is a physician. Get the fuck out. <laughs> Leave this house. <laughs> He's a physician. Boo! <laughs> you suck. Oh, yeah, because your circumference fucking joke wasn't f- stupid. You don't disrespect the Knights of the Round Table like that. <laughs> don't you dare. <laughs> Father Mancuso turned sadly away from the doctor, his eyes staring out the window at the snow. I think so. Something. The priest brought his gaze back to the doctor. Or somebody. Dun dun. The doctor assured the priest that he'd have some relief by the morning. Then he left for his New Year's Eve party. Yeah, of course. Yeah, you'll be fine tomorrow. I gotta go get plastered. I know. <laughs> On TV, Guy Lombardo saluted the New Year from the Waldorf Astoria Hotel. 
The Lutzes watched the ball fall from the Allied Chemical Building in Times Square, but did not share the countdown with announcer Ben Greyer while he told off the last 10 seconds of 1975. Danny and Chris had gone to their room about a half hour earlier. Their eyes were red from too much television and the smoke from George's fire. Kathy had put Missy into her bed and then come back downstairs to her chair across from George. It was now exactly one minute after 12. She stared into the fireplace, hypnotized by the dancing flames. Something was materializing in those flames. A white outline against blackened bricks become clearer and more distinct. Kathy tried to open her mouth to say something to her husband. She couldn't. She couldn't even tear her eyes away from the demon with horns and white peaked hood on its head. It was getting larger, looming toward her. She saw that half of its face was blown away as if it was hit with a shotgun blast at close range. Kathy screamed. George looked up. What's the matter? He said. All Kathy could do was point to the fireplace. George followed her gaze and saw it too. A white figure that had burned itself into the soot against the rear bricks of the fireplace. Okay, so that's creepy. Would not be using the fireplace anymore after that. <laughs> well, what you do is you douse it with water because demons don't like water. No, it has to be holy water. No, it's just water in general. It's like Ouija boards. You don't burn a Ouija board, you just drown it. You close the gateway. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, they could also be highest kites on the fumes from the fireplace. Yeah, because what is it? What is it? Isn't it like, it's not carbon monoxide. Yeah, I think it is. It is? I think so. Okay. Probably. Smoke inhalation, you know, whatever you want to call it. Well, smoke inhalation wouldn't make you crazy. It'd just make you not be able to breathe, but. Well, when you cut off oxygen to your brain, what happens? Yeah. You um. hallucinate. Yeah. Okay. So January 1st, 1976. George and Kathy finally went to bed at one in the morning. They had been sleeping for what later seemed to be what seemed to them no more than five minutes when they were awakened by a howling wind roaring through their bedroom. The blankets on the bed had been virtually torn from their bodies, leaving George and Kathy shivering. All the windows in the rooms were all the windows in the room were wide open and the bedroom door caught by the drafts was swinging back and forth. George leaped from the bed and ran to close the windows. Kathy gathered the blankets off the floor and threw them back onto the bed. Both were breathless from their sudden awakening, and even though the door to their room had slammed shut, they could still hear the wind blowing out in the second floor hallway. George wrenched open the door and was hit by another cold blast. Flipping on the light switch in the hall, he was startled to see the doors to the sewing room and dressing room wide open and the gale rushing freely through the open windows. Only the door to Missy's bedroom remained shut. He ran into the dressing room first, fighting against the gale that hit him, and managed to force the windows down. Then he went to the sewing room, and with the cold now bringing tears to his eyes, closed one window, but George could not budge the open window that faced the Amityville River. He banged furiously on its frame with his fist. Finally, it gave a slot, a slid Finally, it gave and slid to a close. He stood there, trying to catch his breath, shaking in his pajamas. The wind was no longer blowing through the house, but he could hear it gusting violently outside. The chill remained. George took one more look around the room before he remembered Kathy. Honey, he called out, you all right? When Kathy followed her husband out into the hallway, she too had seen the open doors and that Missy's door remained shut. 
Her heart thumping, Kathy had run into her daughter's room and burst through the doorway. She turned on the light. The room was warm, almost hot. The windows were shut and locked, and the little girl was fast asleep in her bed. There was something moving in the room. Then she saw it was Missy's... Then she saw it was Missy's chair beside the window, slowly rocking back and forth. Then she heard George's voice. Honey, you all right? George came into the bedroom. The heat struck him. It was like stepping in front of a fire. George took it all in at once. The little girl safely asleep, his wife standing at the side of Missy's bed, the incredulous look of fright on Kathy's face, and the small chair teetering back and forth. He took one step toward the rocking chair, and it immediately ceased its movements. George stopped in his tracks, and it stood absolutely still and motioned motioned to Kathy. Take her downstairs. Hurry. Kathy didn't question George. She lifted the little girl off the bed, blankets and all, hurried from the room, and hurried from the room. George came right out behind him, behind them and slammed the door, not even bothering to turn off the light. Kathy went carefully down the steps towards the first floor. It was ice cold in the hallway. George ran up the staircase to the top floor where Danny and Chris were sleeping. When he came back down from the third floor a few minutes later, he saw Kathy sitting in the dark living room. He held Missy in her arms. The little girl fell still fast asleep on her lap. He turned on the light to the room, the chandelier casting shadows in the corners. Kathy turned from the fireplace to look up at George, questioning, questioning, I can't say this right, questioningly, they're all right, he nodded, they're both sleeping, it's cold up there, but they're okay. Kathy let out her breath, he saw its vapor hang in the cold air. Vape. Oh my god. George hurriedly started a fire, his fingers were numb, and he suddenly realized that he was barefoot and hadn't thrown anything on over his pajamas. George finally got a small blaze going with a newspaper, then fanned the flame with his hands until some of the coal, some of the old kindling caught fire. Crouched in front of the fireplace, he could hear the winds outside howling. Then he turned and looked at Kathy over his shoulder. What time is it? The only, oh, that was the only thing he could think of to say, George Lutz recalls. He remembers the look on Kathy's face when he asked the question. She stared at him for a moment, then replied, I think it's about... But before Kathy could finish, she burst into tears, her whole body shaking uncontrollably. She rocked Missy back and forth in her arms, sobbing. Oh, George, I'm frightened to death. George stood up and walked over to his wife and daughter. He crouched He crouched down in front of the chair and put his arms around both. Don't cry, honey, he whispered. I'm here. Nobody's going to hurt you or the baby. The three remained in that position for some time. Slowly, the fire burned brighter and the room began to warm up. It seemed to George that the winds were diminishing outside. Then he heard the oil burner click on in the basement, and he knew it was exactly 6 o'clock in the morning on New Year's Day. By 9 a.m., the temperature in 112 Ocean Avenue had risen to the thermostat controlled 75 degrees. For once, the icy chill in the house had had dissipated. George had made an inspection tour of each window from the first floor to the third. There was no visible evidence that anyone had tampered with the locks on the windows of the second floor. And George remained completely baffled as to how such a bizarre event could have taken place. Looking back at the episode, he claims that at the time, he and Kathy couldn't think of any reason for the windows behaving the way they did except for a freak of nature. 
that the hurricane strength winds had somehow forced the windows up. But he can't answer why it happened only to the second floor windows and not to any others in the house. Suddenly, George felt an urge to go to his office. It was a holiday. No one would be in, but he felt compelled to check his company's operations. William H. Perry, Inc. had four crews of engineers and surveyors in the field. The company had created the plans and blueprints for the largest building complex to date in New York City for the Glen Oaks Tower in Glen Oaks, Long Island and was also responsible for planning a 40-block urban renewal project in Jamaica, Queens. In addition, there were several small surveys for title companies. The coordination for setting up each day's work was quite intricate, and for the past few weeks, George had been leaving that assignment to one of the draftsmen, an experienced employee who had worked for his father and grandfather. Over the past year, after he had taken full control of the company from his mother, George's main concern had been with collecting from the city and construction companies that used his services. The company's payroll and expenses were much larger than they had been when George's father was alive. There was also the matter of paying off six cars and new field equipment. George realized he had been slacking off, but it was time to resume his share of the responsibilities. At 10 in the morning, Father Mancuso was also awake. He hadn't slept much, but had gotten up several times during the night to soak his blistered hands in Burroughs solution, as the doctor had recommended. The priest had been out of bed since seven, even though he was enervated by flu and didn't and did feel better when he was lying down. That's why you need to be listening. Lay down. The medication had relieved some of his some of the discomfort and itching in his palms, but the prescription for his flu had no effect on his high fever. Take some damn Tylenol. It's a fever reducer. Like. He's got Jesus. <laughs> Stop. That's what's funny. He's, he's only, so this priest has only prayed once. Yeah. To help with this sickness that he's fighting or whatever. Take some Tylenol. Take a fever reducer. Take ibuprofen. Take literally anything. Any fever reducer. Like, come on. In an effort to concentrate on the things beside his mysterious affliction, Father Mancuso tried reading some of his subscription magazines, searching for articles to, divide, to, to divert his attention from his problem. In the succeeding three hours, oh. in the succeeding three hours, he read through over a dozen new and old periodicals. Then he noticed a slight discoloration on the last magazine he had held. The priest turned over his hands; the palms were smearing. The blisters looked as if they were about to burst. Oh my god. <laughs> By noontime, George was in Syaset working with his adding machine. He had discovered that the money that was coming in didn't balance with what was going out. The accounts payable column was becoming one too one-sided lately, and he knew he would have to cut back on his field crews and office personnel. George hated the idea of depriving men of their livelihood, particularly when he knew they'd have a hard time finding other jobs in the suffering construction industry. But it had to be done, and he wondered where to begin. George didn't dwell too long on the subject, however, because he had other pressing problems. Before the bank week was up the next day, Friday, he would again have to transfer funds from one company bank account to another to cover checks that had been issued to suppliers. Deeply involved in these manipulations, George didn't notice the passing time. For the first moment since December 18th, 
which was, as a reminder, the first day that they moved in, George Lutz was not thinking about himself or 112 Ocean Avenue. Well, that's because he finally fucking went to work. (laughs) But his wife was thinking, thinking very hard about the house. Kathy hadn't told George in so many words, but she was becoming convinced that some of the events in the past two weeks had been the work of outside forces. She was sure he would think her conclusion silly, and she had been too embarrassed to tell George of her encounter with the ceramic lion. She now feels that she had become aware that the little bits and pieces were adding up even before George had. She was frightened and wanted to talk to someone. She thought of her mother, but quickly dismissed the idea. Joan Connors was very religious and would insist that Kathy immediately talk to her old parish priest. Kathy wasn't quite ready to enter a world of ghosts and demons. She wanted the discussion to remain on a more general level at first. In her heart, however, she knew perfectly well where the subject would eventually lead. She went into the kitchen and dialed the phone number of the one person who would understand what she was looking for, Father Mancuso. I don't know if he's going to understand because he's having issues himself, but you could try it. She heard the connection go through and the first ring on the other end. As Kathy waited for the second ring, she suddenly became aware that the kitchen was pervaded by an by a sweet odor of perfume. Her flesh crawled as she waited for the familiar touch of her body. Father Mancuso's number rang again, but Kathy never heard it. She had hung up the telephone and run from the room. In the rectory, Father Mancuso had been bathing his hands in the solution and found that the bleeding in his palms had stopped. The priest had a towel in his hands when the telephone rang in his living room. He picked up his telephone after the second ring. When he said, hello, the line was disconnected. He looked at the instrument. Well, what was that all about? Then Father Mancuso thought of George Lutz and shook his head. Oh no, I'm not going through that business again. He put down the receiver and went back into the bathroom. The priest looked at his blisters. Disgusting, he thought. Then he looked at his face in the mirror. When will this end? He said to his reflection. His his illness certainly showed. The circles under his eyes were darker, and there there was an unhealthy pallor to his skin. Father Mancuso gingerly felt his beard. It needed trimming, but his hands would never be steady enough to hold a pair of scissors. Father Mancuso says that staring at his reflection in the mirror suddenly made him think of the subject of demonology. The priest was aware that the, of the scope of the field and the various occult phenomena it, studies embrace, its study embraces. He had never liked the subject, not even when he was taking the course in his student days at the seminary, and he had never tried to become too knowledgeable. Father Mancuso knows of other priests who have concentrated on demonology but he's never met an exorcist every priest is empowered to perform the rites of exorcism but the catholic church prefers that this dangerous ceremony be restricted to those clerics who have become specialists in dealing with obsession and possession father mancuso kept looking into his own eyes in the bathroom mirror but found no answers to his dilemma he felt the time he felt it was time he confided in his friend the pastor of the long island rectory The morning snowfall had made traveling on the roads hazardous. As the day wore on, it got colder and cars began to get caught in drifts and skid on icy spots all over Long Island. But the snow had stopped falling while George was driving back to Amityville from his office and he made it home all right. 
The driveway of 112 Ocean Avenue was heavy with fresh snow. George saw he George saw he would have a clear path to the garage before moving the van into the driveway. I'll do it tomorrow, he thought, and left the vehicle parked on the street, which had been recently plowed by the city snow trucks. He noted that Danny and Chris had been playing in the snow. Their sleds were parked up against the steps leading to the kitchen door. As he stepped inside, he saw that they had left a trail of melting snowy footprints through the kitchen and up the staircase. Kathy must be upstairs, he thought. If she'd seen the slush they'd tracked into her clean house, there would have been hell to pay. George found his wife in their bedroom, lying on the bed, reading to Missy from one of the little girl's new Christmas story books. Missy was gleefully clapping her hands. Hi, gang, he said. His wife and daughter looked up. Daddy, they chorused together, leaping off the bed and circling and encircling George with delight. For the first time in what seemed like ages to Kathy, the Lutz family had a happy supper together. Unknown to her, Danny and Chris, forewarned by George, had sneaked back down to the kitchen and wiped away all traces of their snowy entry. They sat at the table, their faces still ruddy from hours spent romping in the cold air, and wolfed down the hamburgers and french fries their mother had prepared especially for them. Missy kept the family in smiles with her aimless chatter and the way she kept sneaking fries off the boys' plates when they weren't looking. When caught, Missy would turn her face toward her accuser and flash a mouthful of teeth minus one to disarm him. Kathy felt more secure with George with George home. Her fears had momentarily calmed, and she gave no further thought to the latest whiff of perfume earlier that afternoon. Maybe I'm getting paranoid about the whole thing, she thought to herself. She looked around she looked about the table. The warm atmosphere certainly didn't portend a visit from any more ghosts. As for George, he had left his depressing business operations retreat to the furthest recesses of his mind. It was as though he had entered a little cocoon at 112 Ocean Avenue. This was the way he wanted life to be at all times in his new house. Whatever the world outside had to offer, the Lutzes would tough it out together from their home. He and Kathy shared a steak. Then, lighting a cigarette, George wandered off to the living room with the boys. George had brought Harry into the house to feed him and then let him remain it and let him remain to rough it up with his two sons in the front in front of the fireplace. The Lutzes had eaten early, and so it was only a little after eight when Danny and Chris began to nod. Well <clears throat> while the boys marched upstairs to bed, followed by Missy and Kathy, George took Harry out to the doghouse. Wading through the snow that had piled up between the kitchen door and the compound, he tied Harry to the strong headline. He crawled into his doghouse, turned around several times until he found the right spot, and then settled down with a sigh. While George stood there, the dog's eyes closed and he fell asleep. That does it, said George. I'm taking you to the vet on Saturday. After putting Missy to sleep, Kathy returned to the living room. George made his usual tour of the house, now double-checking every window and door. He had already inspected the garage and boathouse doors when he took Harry outside. Let's see what happens tonight, he told Kathy when he came back down. It's not blowing at all out there. By 10 p.m., both George and Kathy were feeling drowsy. His blazing fire was running out, but the heat was affecting their eyes. She waited until George had poked out the last embers he and had poured water over some still smoldering pieces of wood. 
Then Kathy turned off the chandelier and looked around to take her husband's hand in the darkness. She screamed. Kathy was looking past George's shoulders at the living room windows. Staring back at her were a pair of unblinking red eyes. At his wife's scream, George whirled around. He also saw a little, the little beady eyes staring directly into his. He jumped for the light switch and the eyes disappeared in the shining reflection of the glass pane. Hey! George shouted. He burst through the front door into the snow outside. The windows of the living room faced the front of the house. It didn't take George more than a second or two to get there, but there was nothing at the windows. Kathy, he shouted, get my flashlight. George strained his eyes to see toward the back of the house in the direction of the Amityville River. Kathy came out of the house with his light and his parka. Standing beneath the window where they had seen the eyes, they searched the fresh, unbroken snow. Then the yellow beam of the flashlight picked up a line of footprints extending clear around the corner of the house. No man or woman had made those tracks. The prints had been left by cloven hooves like those of an enormous pig. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun. January 2nd. When George came out of the house in the morning, the cloven hoof tracks were still visible in the frozen snow. The animal's footprints led right past Harry's compound and ended at the entrance to the garage. George was speechless when he saw that the door of the garage was almost torn off its metal frame. George himself had closed and locked the heavy overhead door. To wrench it away from its frame would not only have created a great racket, but would require a strength beyond any of a human being. George stood in the snow, staring at the tracks and wrecked door. His mind raced back to the morning when he had found his front door torn open and to the night he had seen the pig standing behind Missy's window. He remembers saying out loud, What the hell is going on around here? as he squeezed past the twisted door into the garage. He turned the light on and looked about. The garage was still packed with his motorcycle, children's bicycles, and electric lawnmower that had been left by the DeFeos. The old gas-powered machine he had brought from Deer Park, garden furniture, tools, equipment, and cans of paint and oil. The concrete floor of the garage was covered with a light dusting of snow that had drifted through the partly open door. Obviously, it had been off its frame for several hours. Is anybody in there? George shouted. Only the sound of rising wind outside the garage answered him. By the time George drove off to his office, he was more angry than frightened. If he had any terror of the unknown, it had been dismissed by the thought of what is going on to cost him to repair by the thought of what is going what it is going to cost him to repair the damaged door. He didn't know if the insurance company would pay him for something like this, and he just didn't need two or three hundred dollars of extra expense. George doesn't recall how he ever maneuvered the Ford van over the dangerous snow and ice covered rows to Syaset. His frustration at being unable to comprehend his bad luck blocked out any concern for his own safety. At the office, he quickly occupied himself with his immediate problems and for the next hours was able to put aside any thoughts about 112 Ocean Avenue. Before he'd left home, George had told Kathy about the garage door and the tracks in the snow. She tried calling her mother, but there was no answer. Then Kathy remembered that Joan always shopped on Friday mornings rather than buck the Saturday crowds at the supermarket. She went upstairs to her bedroom, intending to change the linen in all the rooms and vacuum the rugs. Kathy's mind raced with the details of thoroughly cleaning her house for the first time. If she didn't occupy herself completely until George returned, she knew she'd fall to pieces. She had just finished putting fresh cases on her pillows and was plump... 
and was plumping them up when she was embraced from behind. She froze and instinctively called out, Danny? The grip around her waist tightened. It was stronger than the familiar woman's touch she had experienced in the kitchen. Kathy sensed that a man was holding her, increasing the pressure as she struggled. Let me go, please, she whimpered. The pressure eased suddenly, then the hands released her waist. She felt them move up to her shoulders. Slowly, her body was being turned around to face the unseen presence. In her terror, Kathy became aware of the overwhelming stench of the same cheap perfume. Then another pair of hands gripped her waist. Kathy says she sensed a struggle going going on over possession of her body, that somehow she had been trapped between two powerful forces. Escape was impossible, and she felt like she was going to die. The pressure on her body became overwhelming, and Kathy passed out. When she came to, she was lying half she was lying half off the bed with her head almost touching the floor. Danny had come into the room in answer to her call. Kathy knew the presence was gone. She couldn't have been out for more than a moment. Call Daddy at his office. Danny, hurry. Danny returned in a few minutes. The man on the telephone says Daddy just left Syaset. He thinks he's coming back here. George did not come back to the house until early afternoon. When he reached Amityville, he drove up Merrick Road towards his street and stopped off at the Witch's Brew for a beer. The neighborhood bar was warm and empty, the jukebox and television set were silent, and the only sounds in the place were those of the bartender washing glasses. When George entered, the man looked up and recognized him from the other day. Hey man, good to see you again. George nodded in return and stood up at the bar. A Miller's, he ordered. George watched while the bartender filled a glass. He was a roly-poly young guy, somewhere in his late 20s, with a stomach that suggested he liked to sample the beer he sold. George took a long sip, half-emptying the tall stein before putting it down in the dark wood bar. Tell me something, George belched. Did you know the DeFeos? The young man had resumed his glass washing. He nodded. Yeah, I knew him. Why? I'm living in their house now, and yeah, I know. The bartender interrupted. George lifted his eyebrows in surprise. The first time you came in here, you said you just moved into 112 Ocean. That's the DeFeos. George finished off his beer. They ever come in here? The bartender put down a clean glass and wiped his hands on a towel. Only Ronnie did. Sometimes he brought in his sister Dawn, a cute kid. He picked up George's empty glass. You know, you look a lot like Ronnie. The beard and all. You, I think you're older than he is, though. Did he ever talk about their house? The bartender put a new beer in front of George. The house? Yeah, you know, like, did he ever say there was anything funny going on in there? Stuff like that? George took a sip. You think there's something bad about the joint? I mean, now after the murders? No, no, George raised his hand. I was just asking whether he had said anything before, you know, that night. The bartender looked around the bar as if to confirm no one else was around. Ronnie never said anything like that to me personally, he leaned closer to George, but I'll tell you something. I was there once. They threw a big party, and Ronnie's old man hired me to take care of the bar. George had finished half of his second beer. What'd you think of the place? The bartender spread his fat arms wide. Big. A real big joint. I didn't see too much of it, though. I was down in the basement. A lot of booze and beard flows. <laughs> a lot of booze and beer flowed that night. It was their anniversary. He looked around the bar again. Did you know they got a secret room down there? George pretended ignorance. No, where? Uh-huh, the bartender said. You take a look behind those claws and you'll find something that'll really shake you.
George leaned over the bar. What was it? A room. A little room. I found it that night. I was down in the basement. There was this plywood closet built up inside the stairs. I'm using it to ice the beer in. See? When I bumped... When I bumped a keg against one end of the closet, it seemed the whole wall was loose. You know, like a secret panel, something out of an old movie. What about the room? George prodded. The bartender nodded. Yeah, well, I bumped the plywood. It came open, and I could see this dark space behind it. The light bulb wasn't working, so I lit a match. And sure enough, there's this weird little room, all painted red. You're putting me on, George protested. The bartender put his right hand over his heart. God's honest truth, man, so help me. You'll see. George finished his second beer. I'll certainly have to look for that. He put a dollar on the bar. That's for the beers. He put down another. That's for yourself. Hey, thanks, man. The bartender looked at George. You want to know something really flaky about that little room? I used to have nightmares about it. Nightmares? Like what? Oh, sometimes I dream that people, I don't know who they were, were killing dogs and pigs in there and using their blood for some kind of ceremony. Dogs and pigs? Yeah, the bartender waved his hand in disgust. I guess the place, the red and all, really got to me. When George got home, he and Kathy both had stories to tell each other. She described the frightening event in their bedroom, and he related what the bartender at the witch's brew had told him about the red room in the basement. The Lutzes finally realized that there was something going on that was beyond their control. Please, call Father Mancuso, Kathy begged. Ask him to come back. Father Mancuso's superiors had been concerned with his health and had dropped by to look in on him. Father Mancuso told them that he felt much better that morning. They also decided to spend some time together to review the priest's workload. Most of the backlog was quickly cleared up and put in Superior's briefcase. <clears throat> A secretary would do the typing. Father Mancuso saw the clerics to the building's entrance and then walked back to his apartment. The phone was ringing. He was still wearing the soft white cotton surgical gloves he had found in the drawer. The priest had explained to the bishop that he had to put them on his hands to protect them from the cold, but his real motive was to hide the ugly rawness of his blisters. The, police, the priest's telephone rang five times before he picked it up. Hello, this is Father Mancuso. The voice on the other end came through loud and clear. Father, this is George. The priest couldn't believe his ears. It was as if George was standing right in the room with him. He was so surprised that he blurted out, George? George Lutz, Kathy's husband. Oh, oh, hi, H how are you? George held the receiver away from his ear and looked at Kathy standing next to him. What's with him, he whispered. He sounds like he doesn't remember me. Father Mancuso knew who George was all right, but he was still stunned to hear from him on an open line without any interference at all. I'm sorry, George. I didn't mean to be rude. I just wasn't ready for your call this way after all the trouble I've had reaching you. Yeah, answered George. I know what you mean. Father Mancuso waited for George to continue, but there was only silence. George, you still there? Yes, Father, said George. I'm here and Kathy's right beside me. He looked at his wife. We want you to come back and bless the home. Father Mancuso thought of what had befallen him the first time he had blessed the Lutz's home. He looked at the white gloves on his hands. Father, can you come right away? The priest hesitated. He didn't want to go back there, but he couldn't tell George that in so many words. Well, George, he finally answered, I don't know if I can right now. I have the flu again, you see, and the doctor doesn't want me running around in this cold weather. Well, George interrupted, when can you come? Father Mancuso began to look for a way out. Why do you want me to bless your house again? You don't just do that at the drop of a hat, you know. 
George was desperate. Look, we owe you a dinner. You come. Kathy and I will cook the best steak you've ever had. Then you can stay overnight. Oh, I I couldn't do that, George. Well, we'll make you drunk enough to stay. Father Mancuso couldn't believe what he had just heard. You just don't say things to a, such things to a priest. Listen here, young man. You, you, Father, we're in a lot of trouble and we need your help. The priest's anger evaporated. What's the matter, he said. There's things happening around this house we don't understand. We've seen a lot of... The telephone land, line began to crackle on both ends. What did you say, George? I didn't hear you. There would be no more conversation between the two men. There was no longer anything to be heard on the line but static and a loud whirring sound. Both men knew it was no use and hung up their telephones. George turned to Kathy and looked around the room. It started again. It's killed the phone. By the time Father Mancuso put down the receiver, his hands were burning again. God forgive me, he said aloud, but George is going to have to get help from someone else. There's no way I'm going back to that house. Oh, boy. I mean, on one hand, I don't blame him. No, right, right, right. I but don't. on the other hand, you kind of signed up for it. Exactly. Well, I mean, like, I don't blame him for two reasons. One, he's sick. And two... He ain't sick. ...of what happened to him in the house. Well, he has the flu. He's got the fever. Yeah. Because he more, won't take a fever more cowbell. Oh, my God. Okay. So we're going to read to... I'm going to read one more chapter, which is January 2nd to the 3rd. And then we're going to end here. Or after I do that. So, January 2nd to the 3rd. Disappointed that they couldn't convince Father Mancuso to return to their house, George and Kathy discussed other ways of getting help. I mean, there's other priests in the world. Both had agreed that now that they had already moved in, it would be unseemingly to ask the local priest to ask the local parish priest in Amityville to bless the house. Besides, he had been the confessor to the DeFeos, and George recalled from newspaper accounts that he was an elderly man who poo-pooed the thoughts of voices in the house telling Ronnie what to do. He wasn't much of a believer in occult phenomena. At one point, George talked of vandalism. Possibly Possibly someone was trying to frighten them out of the house, using violent acts of destruction to to hurry their departure. Kathy had her own opinions. When she had said something had touched her, had George thought it was just her imagination? He didn't. Could he explain the horrible figure burned into the brick wall of the fireplace? He couldn't. Had they really seen the pig tracks in the snow? They had. Would he agree that there was a powerful force in the house that could hurt the family? He did. What were they going to do? When they went to bed that night, George told her that he had decided to go to the Amityville Police Department the next day. During the night of January 2nd, George again had the urge to check out the boathouse and found Harry fast asleep in his doghouse. The next morning, he drove Harry to the animal hospital in Deer Park that he had been using and had them check the dog over thoroughly. It had cost him $35 to discover that Harry was sound and didn't appear to be drugged or poisoned. The vet suggested that the animal's lassitude might possibly have developed from a change in his diet. Or having the life sucked out of him. Yeah. Also, I'm glad that that only cost him $35 in 1975. (laughs) Because today, it'd probably be like $500 to find out that nothing's freaking wrong with the animal. Eli. (laughs) 
On the morning of January 2nd, Father Mancuso again blessed the Lutz's home. So he did go back. He didn't perform the ceremony in Amityville. Ooh, never mind. Spoke too soon. But at the church and the Long Island Rectory. In the church, the priest held a votive mass, a mass that does not correspond with the prescribed for, with one prescribed for the day, but it is said for a special intention at the choice of the celebrant. Father Mancuso removed his gloves. He knelt at the altar and opened his missal. He began, I am the savior of all people, says the Lord. Whatever the troubles, I will answer their cry and I will always be their Lord. The priest crossed himself and read aloud the opening chapter of the mass. God, our father, our strength in adversity, our health and weakness, our comfort and sorrow, be merciful to your people. Father Mancuso lifted his eyes to the figure on the cross. As you have given us the punishment we deserve, give us also new life and hope as we rest in your kindness. We ask through this Christ our Lord. He closed his missile but kept his eyes on Jesus. Lord, look kindly on t- to the Lutzes in their sufferings, and by the death of your son endured for us, turn away from turn away from them your anger and the punishment their sins deserve. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. After the votive mass, Father Mancuso returned to his apartment to find a stupefying odor of human excrement pervading his rooms. He gagged but managed to throw open all the windows. The freezing air rushed in, providing momentary relief, but then the stench overpowered the cold wind. Father Mancuso ran into his bathroom to see if something to see if somehow the toilet had backed up. But no, there was nothing amiss, not until you tried to breathe. The priest knew there was a cesspool under the front lawn of the rectory and dry wells behind the parking lot. He enlisted the aid of the maintenance man and together they found no animals had been trapped in the wells and that the cesspool was in good working order. There had been no apparent leaks in the plumbing. Father Mancuso feared that the horrible odor might begin to pervade in the pervade the entire rectory. Other priests might be driven from their rooms to the school building across the yard. The pastor would be extremely upset over the incident. Finally, Father Mancuso decided to burn incense to dispel the noxious stench. Up to that point, Father Mancuso had not attributed the smor- had not attributed the source of the smell to his own apartment, but after lighting the incense in in his rooms and returning to the school building with the others, the priest realized that his apartment had been the first struck, evidently while he was celebrating the special mass for the Lutzes. He then made the terrifying connection. A disembodied voice in 112 Ocean Avenue had told him to get out. Whoever that voice belonged to, it had reached clear across to the rectory to give him the same message. There was another connection Father Mancuso had been trying to make. He realized it when he stood by the windows in the lobby and looked across to his apartment in the rectory, remembering one of the lessons he learned in demonology. The odor of human excrement was always associated with the appearance of the devil. In the afternoon, Detective Sergeant Lou Zamataro, gosh, that name, of the Amityville Police Department went along with George, saw the wrecked garage door and the animal tracks still visible in the frozen snow, and then went into the house. He was introduced to Kathy and the children. She repeated her story of the ghost-like touchings and took the sergeant into the living room to show him the image burned into the fireplace wall. 
Even after George and Kathy had showed him the red room in the basement, they sensed Zamataro's skepticism. He had listened to George's version of the evil use of the hidden of the hideaway, nodded when George mentioned Ronnie DeFeo as the builder of the secret room, then asked the Lutzes whether they had any concrete facts to base on their fears. I can't work on what you believe you've seen or heard. Maybe you ought to get a priest in here, he suggested. It sounds more like his kind of job than a cop's. Sergeant Lou Zamataro left the Lutz's house and got into his car. He knew he hadn't helped the young couple at all, but there was really nothing he could do for them except maybe have a cruiser stop by once in a while. There had been no use in frightening them anymore, he had told himself as he drove off. Why make things worse when why make things worse by mentioning that he felt strong vibrations, a creepy feeling, the moment he walked into 112 Ocean Avenue? When the sun went down, there still wasn't very much relief from the stench of the Long Island Rectory. The heavy smoke released by the burning incense had gotten into the eyes and lungs of everyone who had entered Father Mancuso's rooms. His visitors were no longer able to tell whether they were nauseous from smoke or from the original smell. Father Mancuso had left his windows wide open in the hope that the cold air would eventually drive the odor from his rooms. But that effort backfired. The inrushing wind had only blocked the smoke and smell from getting out. The priest had wanted to tell the others that he knew what had happened and why, but he kept his own counsel, praying for quick deliverance from the, this latest humiliation. Immediately after Sergeant Zamataro had left, George noticed the compressor in the boathouse had stopped. There was no reason for the machine stopping unless it had overloaded the circuits and blown a fuse. That meant he would have to go down to the basement in the main house to examine the fuse box. George knew the box was in the area of the storage closets and took a fresh box of fuses down with him. In the cellar, he quickly discovered the blown fuse and replaced it. He heard the compressor start back up again, making a loud racket as it began to churn, but waited to see if another overload would occur. After a few moments, he was satisfied and started to go back upstairs. When he was halfway up the cellar steps, George became aware of the smell. It wasn't fuel oil. He had his flashlight with him, but the lights in the basement were still on. From his position on the stairs, George had been able to see almost the entire cellar. He sniffed and then sensed the foul odor was coming from the area near the northern, near the northeast corner by the plywood storage closets that shielded the secret room. George went back down the stairs and warily approached the storage closets. As he stood before the shelving that hid the small room, the odor became stronger. Holding his nose, George forced open the paneling and shone his flashlight around the red-painted walls. The stench of human excrement was heavy in the confined space. It formed a choking fog. Nauseated, George's stomach began to heave. He had just, uh, he had just time enough to pull the panel back into place and shut out the mist before he vomited, fouling his clothes and the floor. Father Mancuso and the pastor of Long Island Rectory had been friends for several years, ever since the priest had taken an apartment in the rectory. Even with Father Mancuso's heavy workload and busy schedule within the diocese, their friendship had ripened to, and the two priests had become close companions. There was a 20-year difference in their ages, Father Mancuso being 42, but there was no generation gap. 
On the night of January 3rd, all that changed. Depressed with unrelenting, disgusting odor that permeated his apartment, Father Mancuso turned on the pastor and their comradeship was was irrevocably destroyed. It started in the pastor's office when Father Mancuso had gone to pick up some reports that had been typed for him. He was about to return to his own rooms when the pastor walked in with three other priests. Father Mancuso had just finished dinner, such as it was since he had been unable to rid himself of the odor that clung to his clothes. He glanced across the room to the pastor who was standing beside a desk. I don't know why the stink is in my rooms only, he barked. Why am I the only one chosen for this high honor? The pastor was stunned. He couldn't believe what he had just heard. Why, he thought, the man's completely irrational over the incident. I'm sorry, the pastor said gently in reply, but I really can't give you a logical explanation. Father Mancuso waved his hand at the pastor in dismissal. The other priests had looked in of ama- had looks of amazement on their faces. Father Mancuso had never spoken like this, particularly about his close friends. Now his face became red with rage. How come you're so nice to me, hey? What had gotten into the man? The pastor looked at other priests who were avoiding his glance, embarrassed at being included in the outbreak. Then pastor spoke up. I think this business with the smell is getting the better of you, my friend. It would be better if we talked at another time and in another place. He rose to leave the room. His determined calm deflated Father Mancuso. He retreated but continued to glare at the pastor. There was a look in his eyes that came from someone or something within the priest's body. This emotion had momentarily taken possession of Father Mancuso, just as something had taken possession of and befouled his apartment in the rectory. George had finally managed to clean himself up after the disastrous trip to the basement. He and Kathy were sitting in the kitchen over coffee. It was after 11 p.m., and both were tired from the tension of ever in of the ever-increasing incidents. Only the kitchen seemed relatively safe and and they were reluctant to go up to bed. Listen, George said, it's getting chilly in here. Let's at least go to the living room where it's warmer. He got up from his chair, but Kathy remained seated. What are we going to do? She asked. Things are getting worse and I'm really scared something can happen to the kids. Kathy looked up at her husband. God knows what's going to happen next around here. Look, he answered. Just keep the kids out of the cellar until I set up a fan down there. Then I'm going to brick up the door to that room so it never bothers us again. He took Kathy's arm and pulled her up from the chair. I also want to talk to Eric at my office. He says his girlfriend's got a lot of experience investigating haunted houses. Haunted houses? Kathy interrupted. Do you think this house is haunted? By what? She followed him into the living room and then stopped in the hallway. I just had a thought, George. Do you think our TM had anything to do with all of this? George shook his head. Not nothing at all. But what I do know is that we've got to get help somewhere. It might as well be. As they entered the living room, Kathy cut Kathy's scream cut off the rest of George's words. He looked to where she was pointing. The ceramic lion that George had carried up to the sewing room was on the table next to Kathy's chair its jaws barred at Kathy and George. So. It getting worse. Yeah. The lion, man, I'm telling you. Well, now it's filling the priest with rage, too. Yeah, and that's not good for anybody. And I, I hate. I, lo- I love the fact that he was like, 
they're going to get help from somebody else. So what I'm going to do is put <laughs> on this super special mass. Yeah. And all the other priests in the rectory are like, hey, man, we don't know. You just farted or something. I know. Like, there's not one guy there that studies demonology. Not one. Well, I don't know. Do you think it's because they... They're pastors. They're not priests. So, do you think it's because they don't have the experience with... Because, you know, Catholics, they they delve more into both angels and demons like demonology and stuff like that like yeah, maybe so do you think it's just because they don't know like they don't understand but well, they should be catholics if they're calling him father what wouldn't you just even if you weren't catholic like even if i wasn't catholic you wouldn't you call a priest father? Well, yeah but they're saying that it's like a, at a rectory and stuff like that they're more than likely catholics but they're just pastors or is it just because he is of higher rank than them i have no idea Okay. That would be a question for Will, Bobby, or Dad. <laughs> I don't know. Well, we can ask Will when he comes here Because he said he took demonology classes, which means he, more than likely, Catholicism, because yeah. not a lot of other sects of Christianity really like delve deep into demonology. It's something good to have. Right, right. So, well, we stopped at, uh, we're going to go to next time. June fourth and fifth, I think. No, June. July. <laughs> July. January. 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 <laughs> oh Lord, you don't even know the date either. <laughs> wow. <laughs> January fourth and fifth. That's where we stopped. So, um, we'll continue from there. We might make another section, or we might just say fuck it and do like a two-hour episode and just finish it. I'm just saying, if if me and you were the Lutzes in this situation, kids or no kids, everybody's getting out. And I'm burning the fucking house down. Yeah. You're getting grabbed by stuff. I'm waking up all the damn time. At 3.15 in the morning. My kids are aggressive. Everybody Nobody that comes wants... into this house is getting aggressive. The dog... Or uncomfortable and they're like, no. The dog is lethargic all the time. Right. Yeah, I think I just burned the house down, man. Yeah. I and would... I'd, I'd... I'd let both neighbors on both sides know, hey, just want to let you know. Yeah. Burn my house down. <laughs> it's not for insurance money. It's not for this. It's not for that. It's not. It's, I would it's, be George Lutz. I'd make the biggest freaking fire in the fireplace known to man, and I'd crank that motherfucker. It's strictly because this house is fucking haunted, and something's wrong with it. Yep. And after the fire has burned down, what we're gonna do is we're gonna take all the wood pieces that are still there, and we're gonna throw them in the fucking river because <laughs> when it's unfrozen. <laughs> Yeah, because, <laughs> like, we're not doing this anymore. <laughs> I just love the first world problems that the Lutzes have. It's like, <sighs> we're just so financially strained with my three boats, two motorcycles, two vehicles, <laughs> and this giant-ass house in Long Island. I'm just struggling. I know. It's like, jackass, sell something. I know. Like, is it that there's a boat in the boathouse? Boats. Oh, what? He has, he has two boats. He has a couple motorcycles, I think is what it said. Oh, my God. Well, sell some shit. I think part of it just makes them want to like look good, and I think I don't know, I don't know if it's like they want to look good to disguise the fact that something's going on in their house or like what. Well, from my understanding, they had it when they moved there. Mm-hmm. They just bought the wrong house, but yeah, I'd burn it, burn it down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, big ass fire in the fireplace. Go whoopsies, oopsies. Yeah, I well no because you could technically I think you could probably get away with. Um, he's a surveyor. He could literally just fudge some documents and go, yeah, this house just ain't right. Bulldoze the fucker. 
Well, yeah, but I'm saying, like, if he were to start a fire in the fireplace and nobody knew that he did it, it could have be it could be seen as accidental. Like maybe he put too much of this in I on I mean, technically accident. speaking, he wouldn't have to put it on insurance or anything like that. Just, right. Probably just enough to pay the loan off and then go, okay, I'm done. Even if you just burned, like, a majority of the house to where, okay, at this point the house just needs to be destroyed, that's fine. Bulldoze it. Exactly. Fill the basement that's there, fill it with concrete all the way to the top, and then light yep. that and then light that on fire. Yeah. Kill it with fire. Yeah. Yeah, but the other theory that it's, you know, ancient Indian burial ground and that's what no. Yeah, I don't like that that just got thrown in all of a sudden. It's like, oh well They talk about it all the time, like, oh, the reason why the Amityville house is like that is because it's an ancient Indian burial ground, right? So there's two problems with that. Oh god. One most burial grounds are put in areas where you're not going to accidentally go through them. Up in mountains, surrounded by, you know, cliff sides, things like that, right? The other thing is, it's not going to be a 100 by 280 square foot rectangular property on Long Island that's perfectly square. Yeah. I don't see any Native Americans going out there going, hey, we got to shoot this motherfucker. Get this perfect rectangle. The white man's going to come, and we're going to screw one family up. <laughs> oh my God. No, they're not out there with freaking lasers. No. <laughs> surveying this property going, this rectangle, this is the one. This is the one. This is the one rectangle. Not any of the not any of the sl- plots next to it. No, nothing. I know. Just this one. No. I, I, think no. That's, I think that's bullshit. But what I, I just want to know, like, what... My problem that I have with this house is I want to know why nobody has ever been able to get to the bottom of it. Like, okay, the Conjuring movies. you They got to the bottom of, they found who the demon was. They found out the demon's name, Valak, whatever. And they were able to right. get rid of him because they found out his name. Why has that not been able to be done? Like, why one also why is this house still standing and it's worth 1.4 million dollars because it's not and why hasn't anybody just taken the fucking loss and gotten rid of it because you have to take a loss somebody has to eat the loss and nobody's gonna do it it's not worth 1.4 million dollars of smoking crack i mean technically in long island it is no, it's not. I guarantee you it's fucking not. Because who the hell has gone in that house and redone it since 1928? Has anybody redone, redone that house since 1928 when it was built? Because mm-hmm. if it hasn't, then it ain't worth $1.4 million. I'm going to be walking up that house and I'm going to fall through the damn stairs. Well, and you got to think, they already have an answer for it. People can write it off. Ronnie DeFeo went crazy, killed his family for the life insurance. Okay. And everybody's like, yep, Okay. Even though nobody heard the shots. That's so crazy to me, though, that he was still, he was the sole inheritor <laughs> of the life insurance shit. He was the only one left. <laughs> Even though he killed him. You know what he said on his deathbed? What? So when he died, um, they asked him if he had any words or if he wanted to say anything mm-hmm. before he died. Like they normally do. And he said, my only regret in life is not killing my grandmother. If I would have killed her, I would have gotten to heaven. Wait, what? Yeah. Hold on. Let me let me pull it up. Why? Dude, I don't fucking know, man. I think whatever demon or evil entity possessed his ass told him if you kill your entire family, you'll make it into heaven. Oh, and he didn't kill his the one family member that wasn't living with him. <laughs> That's crazy. 
Hold on. But he he wasn't he just died. He wasn't executed or anything. No, no. He I think, I think he had didn't he have cancer? Did he have cancer? No, no. He had something. He 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 but he did just die not too too long ago. Hold on. Not uh like twenty twenty one? So in two thousand six when I did an interview with him, DeFeo claimed that he only <laughs> killed his father, his mother, and his eldest sister Dawn. The other siblings were murdered by Dawn before Defio, before Ronnie killed her. Wait, murdered by Dawn? Yeah, that's what he claimed. So his his oh, story his story kept changing over and over and over again. He has no fucking idea what happened in that house. He no, only, I, he thing, fu- he blacked the fuck out. The only thing that he knows is he killed people. Yeah, but he blacked out. I guarantee you, like he blacked out when this whole thing happened. That's why his insanity plea to me is very valid because, like, I think that he blacked out. And I think some people do that. Like that dude that I was telling you about that that judge was telling me about in the courthouse. And he was saying that um, he came home and he caught his wife cheating on him. Right. And he went and he, he killed. Um, I He only killed one of them. I think he killed the man. Killed the lover. And. Um, yeah, here we go. It was on a podcast. Stand by. The only person who I met, I was like, this guy needs to be like either put to death or kept like in a cage like under the jail. He said it was Ronald DeFeo, who the Amityville Horror House guy. He said every morning, like clockwork, seven days a week, every morning, bring Ronald his food and say, how was your night, Ronald? How are you feeling? He was like, good, I feel good. I just, I, I didn't kill my grandma. So, but everything else, other than that, it's good. He would say to him, if I don't kill my grandma, I'm not getting into heaven. So he had it warped. He killed his entire family. He's like, that's how I get to heaven but i gotta get the grandma and then he died in prison recently yeah that so that was from a a, a detention officer that oh, every time wow. he'd bring him food every morning how you doing this morning ron you know making conversation oh you know good just didn't kill my grandmother oh boy that's so i guess he died and he's going to hell <laughs> it seems to me like he if he if he was possessed if he seriously was possessed if we're if we're believing that right now like he is possessed then he remained possessed for the rest of his life while in prison so in 1980 yes louis defeo whom her Louise. son yeah her who whom her son now claims killed her husband right right ronnie defeo now says that dawn killed his father so he didn't he's saying that he he knows he killed people, but he his, Don, didn't his sister kill- Dawn killed other people as well. That it was him and his sister that killed everybody in the house, and then he killed his sister. He don't know. No. Oh well. I think that boy's being psych. Well, he was psychologically tortured his entire existence after that point, and had to live with that. Yeah. Or we believe that he is actually possessed. Something possessed him in the house, and he. Was he never went to church or anything and never tried to have an exorcism or anything like that? Well, how could he? He just killed everybody. You don't think that just because he killed people doesn't mean he couldn't go to church and get an exorcism if he believes he was possessed? Yeah, but he doesn't know that he's possessed. His brain is rationalizing it as, my sister killed them and then I killed her. Oh, wow. Because she killed my family, so I killed her. Wow. But I think Don was one of the first kids to die. Probably. Because I think he shot his mom, his dad. Mm-hmm. Then he walked into her room and killed her. And then the other two. And then the other two. Yeah. Or three. Because he killed six people. Yeah. Two sisters, two brothers, two then, parents. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. Okay. Well, 
we will delve into this a little bit deeper next week and probably have a little bit of a longer episode if we cannot record on a Sunday when I have to edit it as well. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> but other than that, I guess we'll see you next week. And right. hopefully this will be the last part next week will be the last part of this book. Not hopefully. I like, the, I like the Amityville story. It's good. Yeah, it is a good story. So. Well. If we have to make it into four parts or five parts, I mean, we're doing Yeah, we'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. Either way. We'll see you next week. Deuces. Thanks for coming to hang out with us and letting us tell you stories. Don't forget, you can find us on social media, Facebook and Instagram at 3AM Tales of Terror. You can find pictures from each episode there, as well as our website, 3, the number 3, 3AMTalesOfTerror.com. You can also subscribe with your email at our website for updates as well. If you have questions or story ideas for us, you can email us at info at 3AMTalesOfTerror.com. If you want to support us, you can sign up to become part of our Patreon. There, you will get ad-free episodes as well as bonus content. We hope you'll join us next week. And And we we hope hope you are terrified. terrified.